<laughs> if you don't have anybody yelling for you, if you have your kids yelling for you, you're all right. You're all right. Oh, we're so blessed to be here. I'm so glad to be back. Uh, we had such a great time this weekend. All the brothers gathered together. We had a blast. It was a bad weekend for the devil. It was a bad weekend. <laughs> we saw the Spirit of God populate heaven and depopulate hell. I, I was talking to my brother earlier, and uh, he was talking about the fact that we gave a gospel invitation, right? We invited men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because religion won't get you to heaven. Right? You can religiously show up here. You can go to a parochial school, a Catholic school, a private, conservative, evangelical Bible school, and bust hell wide open. Going to church and going to Christian school doesn't make you Christian. Praying to God doesn't make you Christian. <laughs> Helping those who are less fortunate than yourself doesn't make you Christian. Deciding that those who are marginalized and widowed and orphaned and giving to them doesn't make you Christian. In order to be Christian, you have to A, right? Admit that you're a sinner. B, believe in the finished substitutionary death work of Christ. You have to see, confess, agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has risen from the dead. And then you will be saved. And so these men raised their hand. They raised their hand to come forward to get saved. And one of the brothers at the table recognized that there was a guy at his table that was wrestling with whether or not to raise his hand. And so he simply shared the gospel with him at the table when we took these other 11 men back to this room, and that young man got saved. Is that, is that true? Just wave your hand right there. Amen. So 12 individuals who have received the gift of eternal life. What kind of price can you put on that? You can't, you can't put a price on it. And with a crowd this size, there's somebody, or somebody's plural here, that don't know where they were or when it was when they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because, quite frankly, it hadn't happened yet. It might be church going, might be a member of VBC. If you ask them if they're Christian, they would say, absolutely. But if you ask them to tell you how you could become Christian, you would find out that since they can't articulate how to do it, they probably haven't done it. And so our goal is to make sure that while we're talking about the truth, we know it's the, it's the church house, right? So the church house is about equipping the saints. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for the edification or the edifying of the body. That's the threefold purpose of the church. We're, we're supposed to be talking to saints today, not ain'ts. <laughs> supposed to be talking to saints this morning, building up our faith. But, but you always have some tares mixed in with the wheat when you come to worship service on Sunday. But I just want you to know if you're here today and you don't know where you were, you don't know when it was when you received Jesus the Christ, it's not too late for you. That's why God has afforded you another opportunity to yet hear the truth and make a decision not to keep waiting on whatever that time is you're waiting for because the truth is you might not get another opportunity. Tomorrow's not promised. So we're going to move on and jump right into this scripture. You can turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Revelation 5, 9. 
Uh, some of us are 26 book New Testament readers. We don't really touch that revelation thing. <laughs> they got all this allegorical language and all this apocalyptic literature. And I can't spell either word, so you know what? <laughs> Let me keep over there in Matthew and read something I can understand. <laughs> but God wants us to be aware, relevant students of the whole counsel of God. Some of us don't have touched the Old Testament. It's two-thirds of the Scripture. Two-thirds. If it wasn't relevant, God would not have penned it through the prophets for us to read. It's all practical. It all has relevance. It's all necessary. Even though when I'm reading the Bible in a year and I get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I'm saying, God, <laughs> what are you trying to say? Because I've read it five times, same chapter, and I'm 0 for 5. I understand zero. Can't pronounce no names. And I'm trying to understand how that's helping me walk with God. But it's not for me to understand. It's for me to obey. It's for me to walk in. Because his ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than my ways and his thoughts higher than my thoughts. According to Isaiah 55, it's not for me to understand. It's for me to submit, yield myself, avail myself. And John 14, 26 says, it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to teach me and to remind me of all things of Christ. When I need to know, the Spirit of God will illumine my heart. The truth will leap off the page, and I'll understand and comprehend his will for my life. I just have to be faithful to spend time with, God, with God's word. Chapter 5, verse 9, we're talking about courageous conversations. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the verse says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Go to chapter 7. Go to chapter 7. Same book, chapter 7. And actually, same verse, verse 9. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. I'll just stop right there. I could keep reading. In Revelation 5, 9 and in Revelation 7, 9, the Bible says that in heaven you're going to see every tribe. You're going to hear every tongue. You're going to experience and encounter every people group. And you're going to be worshiping with every nation. Nation, Greek word, ethnos. English word, ethnicity. You're going to be worshiping with every nation. So we need to figure this thing out while we're down here. Because there's going to be some black folk in heaven whether you like it or not. I don't know how the white robes are, but mine will be jacked with a little bustier. I'm saying, cock to the side. Pants rolled up, pointed toe shoes with my white, I don't know how mine going to look. 
But you're going to be, there's going to be some Asian folk in heaven. There's going to be some Hispanic folk in heaven. There's going to be some Pacific Islanders in heaven, some Tongans, some Samoans. Every people group is going to be there. And we need to figure out how to have the church look like what heaven looks like. It, it, it's going to be multi-ethnic, cross-cultural, intercultural, intracultural. You're going to be worshiping with people who don't look like you. And so this conversation that we need to have is difficult because it's awkward. You know, I want to say because you're my brother in Christ, we're on the same page. But the truth is, I don't necessarily know all the things or the nuances or particulars of your culture. You probably don't know all about mine. And our ignorance continues to divide us, even though we worship the same Savior. So we got non-believing people like the Unitarian Church that's created courageous conversation workshops for the community, but they don't know how to point them to the master. But we got conservative evangelical churches like the one I pastor, and, and people can't have talk to each other about how difficult it is to watch the news and see what's happening in our country today. It takes courage to have this conversation. It, it, it makes people nervous. Puts people on edge. People not sure what to do with it. Not sure where you're going with it. Not sure if they should keep listening. Oh, Lord, where he going? He's, I don't know where he going. So, so I'm blessed to have, as Pastor said, I'm blessed to have my wife here of 28 years. She was here with me five years ago. Praise God, we're still keeping on. It was 23 years then, it's 28 now. And so I talked to you, the guys were saying, who's this girl you were talking about? that jumped off the top stair, and you had to catch her when she was five years old. She's, she's right there in the second row. Wave your hand, Janae. Wave your hand. There she is right there. That's the airborne sister. <laughs> Daddy had to get ready when he came home from work. <clears throat> and our son, our only son, he's 25, graduated from Washington State University, lives in Oceanside, California, and he's with us as well. Just wave your hand, Josiah. So how many married folk we got in the house? Let me see here. How many married folk we got in the house? Oh, yes, a whole lot of married folk. We got some newlyweds right in here, right in through here. <laughs> Amen. So, so here's what you know if you're married. If you're the husband and your wife says, we need to talk. <laughs> like, oh, Lord. <laughs> and if it's date night, you think to yourself, so now are we talking or fighting? Because what are we doing? Because I'm trying to. I'm not trying to have a discussion about us. I'm trying to go to a little movie, mind my business, eat my popcorn, and come on. So, so but if your wife says we need to have a conversation, and she says, I, I, I need to address A, B, and C. Now, not all husbands. I'm going to just talk about me, fellas. I'm not going to jump on y'all. I'm going to talk about me. Many husbands will, because they are defensive, because of our pride, uh, because of our ego, wearing our feelings on our sleeves, even though, you know, we tough and stoic and don't show emotion. But, but we don't know how to necessarily demonstrate the humility necessary to own our failures. We automatically say, well, what about DEF in your life? That's our first response. Baby, can we talk about A, B, and C? I, it, it hurt me when you did... Yeah, yeah, well, you know, but what about D-E-F? That hurt me, too. 
So I want to make about the DEF because I don't want to own and take responsibility for the pain that I've caused my wife. I'm deflecting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually making it about me. She asked for the conversation, not me. If I wanted to discuss DEF, I should have jumped out the gate first. <laughs> what about, but I didn't and I got defensive. And when I got defensive, I demonstrated to my wife that I'm not willing to validate her feelings. I'm not willing to demonstrate the compassion necessary for her to feel at peace about sharing with me her innermost thoughts and what's coming from her heart. I've demonstrated that I'm more concerned about how am I going to look at the end of this conversation than I am about actually addressing the pain that I've caused her and choosing to repent that we might be reconciled one to another. And because of that, I, I listen to people talk about our country today, and I hear someone say that black lives matter. I hear someone say it's important that an organization like Black Lives Matter exists. And I hear somebody else say, but don't all lives matter? Amen. But don't all lives matter? And I would say, absolutely, all lives matter. But if that's your response to me saying, Black Lives Matter, you just failed to validate me. You, you just failed to demonstrate compassion towards me. You just failed to demonstrate that you can show contrition for someone else because the Bible requires you in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, to weep with those who weep. It doesn't say understand his walk or his heritage or walk in his moccasins and then weep. No. If you see your brother weeping, the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When you fail to do that, you fail to say that my pain is important. What you did is you just made it about you. You, you just made it about what you're thinking and what you're feeling and what, what the people that, that share your same nationality are going through. And not that they're not going through anything. It does need to be addressed. And it is true that all lives matter. But if I tell my wife out the gate, hey, baby, what about DEF? Guess what? She, she's going to feel as though she can't trust me with her honest feelings. Can't trust me. And so this is a very, very hard conversation, right? That's why it says courageous conversations. Because we don't really want to go there. But if we don't go there, then the church will continue to be irrelevant. And as long as we demonstrate that we're so busy conjugating verbs, right? We, we want to write a PhD paper on the aorist tense of the first verb of Romans 1, right? Spend five years to write a paper on a verb. Then the world that doesn't know who God is doesn't have time for us because they're trying to solve problems even though we have the answer. So we, we need to figure out how to have these conversations. And we need to let ourselves get uncomfortable. And, and we need to be willing to say to another person, I don't really understand where you're coming from because it seems like you're emotionally charged about the subject. So there may be somebody in the majority or the dominant culture that's looking for the facts. 
When you say an unarmed African-American male lost his life and a law enforcement officer was of the dominant culture or white hue, what was he doing to get shot? People of color want to be offended about that question. You need to know what happened. There's a video. These phones have blown up. You can watch what happened in said case. And black folk want to know, did you not see the video? Did you, did you miss the video? The video wasn't doctored. The video wasn't edited. It, it is what it is. Both sides come to the table from opposite ends of the spectrum. Individuals come looking for facts. Individuals come wanting to share their feelings. And since we're not on one accord, we wind up doing this. I'm talking about saved folk now. I'm not talking about unregenerate folk that don't know Jesus from man on the moon. I'm talking about the family of God. I can read your post. You're Asian or Korean. I'm reading your, your social media post. I love the daily devotion that you're giving. And then all of a sudden, something pops off in the culture, and you got something on there that's derogatory and insensitive and hurtful. But I've been reading your post for a year and a half. But you're my brother in Christ. What's the problem? We're not willing to have enough courageous conversations. I just want to worship by you. You don't look like me. And I'm above the fray because I don't go to an all-white church. And just, just so you know, this is not a, a white church. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to offend anybody. But you see all these chips, brown chips and chocolate chips running around here? <laughs> this is not a white church. <laughs> just like I don't pastor a black church. I'm African-American, but I don't pastor a black church. Our vision statement says that we're growing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into disciples. We have three Anglo elders, one, one Hispanic elder, and two African-Americans on our elder board. It, it's intentional to allow God to raise up that particular group of men. The same thing is true of our staff. It's multi-ethnic. Why? Because that's the vision. Why? Because that's what I see in the Word. And whatever I see in the Word, I should conform myself to. So turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 26. Boy, that time just runs away. Genesis chapter 26, courageous conversations. Yes, sir. <laughs> you got to love that. Courageous conversations, Genesis 26, verse 34. If, if you are a note taker, you're trying to fill in the blank. This is prejudice based on ethnicity. Prejudice based on ethnicity. The Bible says in Genesis 26, when Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basement, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau married these two Hittite women, and the Bible says that Esau's dad and Esau's mom were grieved of his marital choices. Turn to chapter 27. Same book, book of Genesis. Turn to chapter 27. Chapter 27, verse 40. Chapter 27, verse 40. 46. Not 40, 46. 
And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Who are the daughters of Heth? They are Hittite women. Rebecca and Isaac, they only have two kids, Esau and Jacob. Their oldest boy has already married outside the family. He's already married two Hittite women. I don't want my baby, this is Rebecca speaking, I don't want my baby to do the same thing my oldest boy did. In fact, if he does the same thing and marries some, some women from Heth, what value, what good will my life be? I, I might as well kill myself. See, we, we live in a day and a time where I can worship with you and you don't have to have the same hue as me, but if I try to bring my son over to your house to introduce him to your daughter, we, we might have an issue. <laughs> yeah, we can share the chili. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's all you taking home when you leave here. <laughs> Get your Tupperware together. <laughs> Ain't nobody going nowhere. See, we live in a day and time where we have what we call militarized zones in our spiritual life as opposed to demilitarized zones. The demilitarized zones are areas where I'm willing to give up and allow the Spirit of God to transform me based on the conviction that He gives me. So, God, you can have my cursing. God, you, you can have my lust. God, you, you can have my, my sexual purity. God, you can have my finances and my stewardship. But what you can't have are my kids. Those belong to me. I, I'm the one that picks what I believe is best for my kids. That's a militarized zone. God, you have all that. Let me work this out right here. And I'm saying that's contrary to God's word. It's contrary to the divine love of God, which is supposed to be unconditional. And it's contrary to the will of God concerning our ability to demonstrate John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now watch this, verse 35. By this you will know. By what? By the love that you share for who? Folk that look like you? No. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. Starting in Matthew chapter 5, getting down to verse 46 or so, it says, If you love those who love you, what good is it? What good is it to you? Anybody can do that. What difference is Jesus making if you feel the same way about your kids that your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus feels about their kids? So what God is asking me to do is to stop creating a militarized God, stay out, Lord, didn't you see the sign with the fence I put up, <laughs> section or area of my life and yield my life to him. That, that's what he's asking me. So here, I got a question for you. So, so with all that having been said, with Rebecca, you know, making this statement about the wealth or, or rather the worth of her life, here's my question. Is Rebecca's concern about her boys marrying these Hittites, 
is her, is her concern based on their ethnicity? Is she prejudiced? Or is Rebecca's concern maybe oriented around the Scripture, oriented around the Bible or the Old Testament itself? And maybe there's some kind of prohibition or restriction on what happens with Israelites. And so her concern is really about God's Word. How many think that, just, just we just going to use, how many think Rebecca is prejudiced? Let me see your hand. Vote, we vote. Let me see your hand. We vote. Let me see your hand. <laughs> how many think that Rebecca probably knows something about the Bible we aren't really sure of, and it, it's really about the Bible. It's really about, you know, what, what's going on according to Scripture. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit later, but some of y'all still asleep. Uh, let's just, we in church, let's be honest. How many didn't vote? <laughs> let me see your hands. Yeah. <laughs> let me just tell you something about voting, because I'm going to have one or two more votes before it's over. <laughs> just because when I ask for a vote, instead of giving me eye contact, you look down at your Bible, <laughs> that don't mean I don't see you. <laughs> I see you. What, what did, did you, did a wall come up at the pew and you disappeared because, no, I see you. I see you didn't vote. So, so let's turn to Exodus chapter 34 and find the answer. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 34 and find the answer. What was Rebecca mourning about exactly? Is she prejudiced or is she wanting her kids to walk in the truth? Verse 10, Exodus 34, verse 10. And he said, Exodus 34, 10. And he said, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. God says, I'm driving these nations out far from you. Why, God? Verse 16. And you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Rebecca is not prejudiced. Rebecca is not against the Hittite people. God said, don't allow your kids to marry the kids from these nations, not from the Canaanites, not from the Hivites, not from the Je Jebusites, not from the Perizzites, and not from the Hittites. Why, God? Because these nations worship someone other than me that they call God. But the God they serve is God's small G. I'm the original G. <laughs> right? And so therefore, I don't want you to marry them not because I have an issue with color, but I have an issue with devotion. I want you to understand who provides divine truth, and I want my kids to walk in that truth, and they can't do it unless they're in relationship with me. So it's not always that my perceptions about people's actions 
are always accurate and factual. Your perception of Rebecca, based on how I kind of set her up, right, caused you to kind of lean toward thinking she was out of pocket, right? She was missing God on this point, and she needed to be rebuked in Jesus' name. <laughs> you, you were ready to give her a little truth. But we found out that it wasn't Rebecca that was out of pocket. It was those of us who have implicit bias and are persuaded by the thoughts of other people. Somebody was leading me the wrong way, and I took the bait hook, line, and sinker. Didn't investigate it for myself. I just let the guy up front convince me she was sideways. So in order for us to have courageous conversations, we have to do a better job of doing our homework before we just buy what CNN said, before we just buy what grandma said on the phone. Baby, you know I'm from Mississippi. So, so, so we need to find out what the facts are because we have this implicit bias that things we believe that don't have any facts. Like we believe a certain people group can't drive. <laughs> Every time my look, boy, oh, it's one of them. You know what I knew? You know what? <laughs> it, it just, it's just something we think. Boy, they can't drive. Woo! So, so we've been convinced of this and it's a perception. It's, it's not factual. It's, it's how we think. It's, it's what we've been taught. It's what we've been told. It, it comes from my life experience. And then I allow that to jade my perspective on judging people not by the color of their skin, but affording them to demonstrate the content of their character. I don't want you doing it to me. But I'm, I'm kind of hip, hypocritical because I'll do it to you in a heartbeat. <laughs> so God is asking us, Andre, what are you going to do about it? What are you, how are you going to change it? Let's talk about it. Go to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Prejudice based on ethnicity. Prejudice based on ethnicities. Numbers chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Starting at verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. We're just going to stop right there. So some of you have a translation that says he married a Cushite woman. Some have Ethiopian. What continent is Ethiopia on? That is correct. It would be Africa. So, so... Moses, an Israelite, married somebody African, somebody black. Moses had jungle fever. <laughs> uh, not because I say so, the Bible says <laughs> Moses chose <laughs> to hook up with a sister. <laughs> go, go on, give me that one right there. Come on over here, girl. Let me holler at you. Teach you about this Bible over here. Come on over. Moses connected with this black woman and married her. And his family said, no, no, you don't. No, you don't. Not on my watch. I'm your sister. Don't do it. She jumped right out the gate. How come her name is listed first as opposed to his brother? Because she's the one instigating. His sister's the one bumping her gums. Boy, 
You know you can't bring her up in here. <laughs> Moses going for his anyway. That's what the Bible says. Verse 9. How's God feel about it? Verse 9. The Bible says, so the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. And he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. Then Aaron turned towards Miriam, and there she was, a leper. The reason we know that Miriam was the one bumping her gums is because Aaron didn't get leprosy. I'm just saying, the Bible says he was there, but it lists her first, which means she's leading. Now, if you see a list of 12 disciples, you see Peter first. She, she's leading, and she led herself right down the, the leprous path. Now, I'm not telling you you're going to get leprosy if you hate on interracial couples. <laughs> don't, don't email the pastor. I'm just saying. <laughs> and the Bible says that, that she suffered accordingly. Now, here's the question. Was she upset that her brother married this sister because of the simple fact that she was African? Is she prejudiced? Or did she find herself frustrated because her brother, who's leading the entire nation, is living contrary to the truth he's supposed to be modeling? So, we're going to vote. <laughs> I got my eyes on all y'all. All right, so if you believe that Miriam is prejudiced, let me see your hand. She's prejudiced. Let me see your hand. Oh, we got some voting folk now, boy. They ready. If you believe that Miriam just knows the Scripture and Moses is out of pocket, he, he's failing God even though he's supposed to be modeling God. Let me see your hand. Let me see your hand. Well, we still got a bunch of non-voters, boy. So, so let's go back to the same passage, right? Exodus 34, because this is a Cushite, and we just got to find out in Exodus were any Cushites mentioned, any Ethiopians mentioned. Exodus 34. We just read it. We're just going to read it again. Same passage, verse 11. It's the Amorites, verse 11, the Canaanites and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. No Cushites. Now, let's, let's just talk about that for a second. So, according to Genesis chapter 10, Noah had four boys, one of his, three boys. One of his three boys' name was Ham. Ham had four boys. Genesis 10, 6. Of his four boys, he had some Cushites. His first son, his oldest son's name was Cush. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's bad. But the, that's the Bible. I can't help you. <laughs> Genesis, don't take my word for it. Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. Cush is his name. And then his second boy's name is Mizrim, not Miriam, Mizrim. Right? It, it, it stands for Egypt. His third boy's name is put, P-H-U-T. <laughs> it means Libya. And his fourth boy's name is Canaan. 
So of the restrictions of the nations that don't follow God, when you see Ham, a descendant of Noah, which means dark or black, that means that three of the four black nations honored God from the gate. They didn't have to wait until they became slaves here to worship God. That's what the Bible says. So, so yes, don't let them marry Canaanites. They don't follow God. But Cushites are all right. <laughs> Mizraimites, however you pronounce it, they're good. And Putites, it's all fair game. You can marry a sister if you want to. <laughs> if you like tan folk. Anyway, keep moving on. Keep moving on from that passage. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we got to get ready to go. Time is running out. Ethnicity. Hitler said, Hitler said that Jesus couldn't be Jewish. Jesus couldn't be Jewish because supposedly if he's who they say he is, he would not have come from such a low breed of people. According to Hitler, he has what we call explicit bias, not implicit, explicit he hated Jewish people, so much so that he tried to defend or create the idea that Jesus wasn't Jewish. See, we, we have to deal with the facts and realize that we aren't having very many conversations about the facts. We, we have to deal with the emotion associated with the facts. So I'm African-American. There are 6% African-Americans in federal way. The chief of police in Federal Way, his name is Andy Wong. He's Korean, and he's born again. And there are about 40 or so pastors, 48 pastors. We meet with Chief Wong once a quarter. I call Chief Wong. I introduce myself to him. I said, I don't believe that we would ever have an unarmed shooting in our city. But if we do, I don't want to meet you for the first time marching with some kind of sign. I want to introduce myself to you and ask you, can I bring some pastors with me of all varying ethnicities, not just the black pastors? And he willfully opened up his conference room, and we packed the pastors in, and now we have a prayer vigil with law enforcement and the clergy every January, a public prayer meeting, and we meet him four times a year. And I said to him, I, I, I said, Chief Wong, I, I need some statistics from you. And, and listen, when you email them to me, I, I'm going to still love you when you email them to me. We're still going to be on speaking terms when I get them. Because I already know what they are. I'm just not sure that you do. He said, sure, whatever you want. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I said, can you, can you have your statistician, administrative assistant, look up for me? What are the percentages of traffic stops for the varying ethnicities in our city? So he looked it up. African-American population is 6%, but they make up 31% of all traffic stops. We're 6%, but we make up 31% of all traffic stops. The dominant culture, the Anglo culture, the white population in our city is just under 70%. They make up 9% of all traffic stops. 70% of the people make up 9% of the traffic stops. 6% of the people make up 31%. 
I'm African American. There's only 12% African American population in the United States. 12% African American population in the United States. Of that 12% of African Americans, 6.5% are male. 6.5% are male. But male African Americans make up 40.2% of all incarceration population in the United States. We're 6% of the nation, but we make up 40% of the jail population. 40%. That's an, that is an explicit bias issue. It's open. It's out there. That's a statistic. It's available. You can, you know, we live in the day and the age of the Google. You can Google it. Right? Statistically speaking, one in every 17 white males will experience an arrest in his lifetime. One in every 17. It's one in every three African Americans. One in every three. There's something wrong with that. And the question is, what are we doing about it? Who even knew? Why do I care? I had an Anglo pastor tell me that he was brokenhearted when I, I, we hold a, a faith and race. It's called a pastor's gathering. It's called com courageous conversations about faith and race. And I only wanted senior pastors. And we were praying and asking God to give us 100. We had 141 senior pastors show up. And, and we were having this conversation. The pastor came to me, and a white brother, Anglo brother, and he said, man, my heart was broken. And he began to tear up. He says, I don't have a, a white church. I got a multi-ethnic cross-cultural church. And I was just encouraging him. And he said, man, I had one of my African-American members, female, come to me after the Tamir Rice shooting, the 12-year-old that lost his life in a park. He had a real gun. No one was in the park. And when the officers came, he lost his life. After that shooting, this particular African-American female of this white pastor's church came up to him the Saturday before church on Sunday. She saw him at like a Walmart, and she said to him, Pastor, I just want you to know I won't be at church tomorrow. He said, okay. He said, somebody's sick. She said, no, I'm not going to be at church because I know you're not going to talk about the shooting that happened this week. I know you're not going to address it. I know you don't really know exactly what to say, and you don't want to alienate the, the white population of your congregation, and you don't want to say something politically incorrect or awkward to the black population of your congregation. So I know in the way in which you've practiced these types of things, you just aren't going to say anything, and I'm hurting. I got to go somewhere where somebody's going to say something, and then I'll be back the week after. And he was in tears. He said, I came here with my staff today because I need some instruction as to how to create a platform for those who don the doors of the church I'm called to shepherd on this topic that we don't want to talk about because it's so loaded with offenses and, sensi and sensitivities. We, we just assume not, not go there. But evil prevails when good people do nothing. When, when good people stay home, one lady can walk up the Capitol stairs, one lady, not a bunch of ladies, not a conglomerate of women, 
One lady who's the founder, was the founder and the president of the American Atheist Society, and she by herself can single-handedly remove prayer out of school. Why? Because the church stayed home and did nothing. That, that's what happens. So in Washington, where I live, you know, I live in the most unchurched state in the nation. According to George Barna, the arguably the best Christian statistician in the country, according to him, we, we in the Pacific Northwest are in the darkest region of the country. So we're the first ones to pass same-sex marriage by popular vote. Many states had it passed because it was legislatively decided for them. We voted for it because our mayor is married, our male mayor is married to a man. And five of our nine council members are in same-gender relationships. So we voted for it. We're the first ones, along with Colorado, to, by popular vote, vote to legalize marijuana. We're the first ones to have an administrative law for transgender bathrooms turn, administrative rule, excuse me, turn into a law in November 2016 during the election because we couldn't get enough Christian signatures to stop it, to be able to vote for it. So there's a, an organization called the FPIW, Family Policy Institute of Washington. They called 150 churches to see if they could put a 25-signature petition in the church on a Sunday to get the signatures to stop this rule from becoming law, and they could only find seven churches out of 150 that were willing to have a 25 signature. We're not talking about a stack of signatures. A piece of paper with 25 blanks. Because the church is often irrelevant. We, we don't get involved. We don't open up the conversation. We don't have discussion. Because, I, you know, I love Pastor Phil. He loves me. I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. I don't know what y'all are doing, but I'm going to be with Jesus. That's about all I'm thinking about. But somebody had to be thinking about me when I was lost for me to be in here. And so as we get ready, look at this last passage, Acts chapter 2. We're just going to make this closing statement. All we have to do is realize that there is no such thing as condemnation for the believer. Nothing I'm saying condemns me. Nothing I'm saying condemns you. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is now therefore... No condemnation. This is not about lording over you the truth. This is about the family of God discussing truth. Right? We're not judging anybody lest we find ourselves being judged. Because judgment without mercy will come to those who don't render mercy according to James chapter 2. I got too much, <laughs> too much stuff in my own life. Watch out now. If I tell you all of it, you might close your Bible and leave. Because I'm a person that's in this lifelong sanctification process, I have sin issues that the Spirit of God is dealing with concerning me. So, so there's no condemnation here. This is about finding out what the truth is, reading about it, and asking the Spirit of God to teach me how to walk in it. That, that's all we're doing. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Starting at verse 2. 
And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, and as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where the saints were sitting. Jump over to verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So this, this is not the aesthetic tongues that we see in westernized Christianity. These are definitive languages that are taking place by the Spirit of God. Verse 7. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Galileans. So these are the rural folks of the north that fish. So how are you speaking a, an Asian language if you're Jewish and you're from the backwoods? You, 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 you fish. You, the Bible says of the disciples they were uneducated and unlearned men. How do you know this Iraqi or Iranian language? If all you do is fish, I can tell by your dialect, your Galilean, that means you're supposed to not be so smart. But you're speaking languages from these other nations. Well, what are the other nations that know God? According to verse 8, you have Parthians and Medes and Elamites. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, who hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Who are the Parthians? They're Iranians. That means they've been exposed to God. Not every Iranian, contrary to popular opinion, is Muslim. That's what we call implicit bias. The Bible says that you have Asians, the southern part of the continent at this point, modern-day Turkey, that have devout Jews leaving Asia, coming to Pentecost to participate in worship. So not every Asian, not every Chinese individual came to this country working on the railroad for the new steam engine and got introduced to God by westernized Christianity. According to the Bible. The Bible says that you have Egyptians. We already had that conversation. I don't have to go there. The Bible says you have Romans. The Bible says, so, so now, you know, you have Romans, uh, descendants of one of the three boys of Noah, so they're of white or bright hue. They, they already know God. They didn't have to come to the West to know God. You have Cretans. You have Arabs who aren't Muslim. They're speaking other languages. Listen, uh, Mahatma Gandhi said that when he was in college, somebody recommended that he read the Gospel of John. According to his autobiography, he read the Gospel of John. He was so enamored by the love of God communicated by the Son of God, he wanted to go to church. So he took it upon himself after having read the Gospel of John four times to go to church. When he got to the church that he went to go visit in India, he was told by the greeters at the church that you ought to go find a place to worship where people look like you. 
He says what made him excited about going to church was that in India, he lives in a caste system that doesn't have a middle class. It has an 8 or 9% group of haves and then a 90 plus percent of group of have-nots. And he thought that this love of God thing and this Jesus, son of God person, was saying that the, that the God that, that he is, of course we know, in a triune relationship with, loves everybody and there is no caste system. So he wanted to go find out how does a no caste system work. But when he got in there, he found out that the people aren't practicing what he read. So he said to himself, if I'm not going to experience it in person, there's no reason to transfer over to trade religion of being Hindu to become Christian because they don't practice the thing I read anyway. I might as well stay Hindu. Because that's what happens when people are looking for something authentic and true. And those of us who are indwelt by the truth don't walk out the truth. We alienate the very folk who God's called us, commissioned us to share the truth with. God loves us. His love for us is unconditional. And his aspiration for me and for you is to figure out how to begin to have some of these courageous conversations with each other as believers and not allow ourselves to laugh at jokes that criticize and hurt and undermine the value and the worth of people that we're going to spend eternity with. It's something that we get to make a choice about, and I'm excited about it because I know that at the Bible church, we're receptive to the truth. And even though we have to make a choice to walk in the truth because there's no power in intention, right? You, you can't, well, I intend to do better. That's not going to make you do better. You, you have to decide that from today, I'm going to be that awkward family member at the family reunion that might not get to come back next year. <laughs> Go and get my banana pudding right now. <laughs> might not see no oxtails for a year. Come on, family. Let's act like a family. Let's do better. Let's have some courageous conversations and give God the glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your truth, for your love, for your word, and the way in which you make things different. You make things different. People mess over things. God, we fail you quite regularly, and it's not our intention to continue to do so. Lord, we want to yield ourselves to you. With your head bowing, your eyes closed, there may be somebody here that says, you know, right when you first start talking, you start talking about being religious and coming to church and yet not going to heaven. One of the greatest tragedies of suffering in hell will not be the fire that's unquenchable according to the Bible. It will not be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be the ability to remember how many times you were afforded the opportunity to say yes to Jesus and you didn't do it. That suffering will never go away. It will be there for all eternity. Here's another chance. Here's another opportunity. It's March the 19th, 2017. And once again, you find yourself in the house of God with no capacity or ability by which to say, I know where I was, I know when it was that I gave my life to Christ, surrendered to the Lord, and allowed him to be master over me. It's a decision you have to, be, to make. You can't be born into it.
You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You got to receive it. And we hope you do it today with your head bowed and your eyes closed. If you say, I'm not so sure, I'm going to heaven. I, I don't know when I ask Jesus to be my Savior. I'm not talking about a date. I'm not talking about the day of the week. I'm talking about the event. When was the event that you said no to yourself and yes to God? If you don't know when you've done that or if you've ever done that, then it's not safe for you to die. Did you hear me? It's not safe for you to die. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, you say, I want to receive Christ. Today's the day that I mark it down. March 19, 2017, I moved from religion to relationship. I invited Jesus to be Lord of my life. 